0: Today we're going to John chapter four. Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. We're talking about the joy of divine encounter, the joys of divine encounters. So let's uh, let me read. Actually, it'll be two messages, not two this morning, but two messages. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, says John, but it means John the Baptist, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and he departed again into Galilee, and then we have what appears to be an innocent statement, but it's packed, so typical John, and he had to pass through Samaria. It wasn't elective. There was something about this that meant it was obligatory. It had to happen. And that's what we want to talk about initially. I know that most of you are like my father was, like, like I am. You really feel bad if you feel that you haven't been instrumental, probably many times you've tried, in leading persons to Christ. My dad always felt bad. He told me that many times. It wasn't that he didn't try. I don't have time to tell you how hard he tried. But he said, to my knowledge, I've never been first person to lead somebody to Christ. Of course, he didn't live long enough to see that his sons did, and that he was responsible, humanly speaking, for that. This is a passage following the Lord's example that will show us how we can be effective in bringing people to Christ or effective in accomplishing God's other purpose. His work is a ministry to salvation. It's also a ministry to condemnation. And we're going to see that. Both glorify him. God is glorified in his judgment as well as in his deliverances. Well, let's talk about this verse 4. He had to go through Samaria. The scriptures teach us, Jesus teaches us, and we'll see it clearly in John chapter 5. That in his ministry on earth, he placed himself under the authority of the Father. John chapter 5 tells us that every movement of the Lord Jesus was dictated by the Father in heaven. So that on earth, he mirrored what he saw in heaven. So in this instance, Jesus was going where Jews didn't ordinarily go. Let's get this geographical picture. Take a stack of blocks. Up here is a block. This is Galilee. Here's a block right in the middle. That's Samaria. Here's a block down here at the southernmost end. That is Judea. Ordinarily, the Israelites, well, from where you're sitting, we'll put it on the other side of Jordan. The Israelites would not go through Samaria. They didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't like them. More about that in a moment. But they would come down, and before they got to Samaria, they would turn left, and they would go on the east side and go down to Jerusalem. And uh, that was just protocol. So it was striking that Jesus didn't conform to the regular pattern. He came from Galilee, and he went right through Samaria. Text says he had to. And the point is that Jesus let himself be directed, of course, in a more perfect way than you and I ever can. He let himself be directed by God the Father where the Father wanted him to go. So it is with us, though, as I say, the the relationship between us, because we are sinful human beings, he is not. The relationship is not so perfect that we always get our signals right. But what we want to do is, hmm, this is not up here. There should be an A up there. Okay, something went wrong. There we go. Notice the element of divine appointment in the movements of Jesus. That's the first thing I want you to see, the joy of divine appointments, divine encounters. We always want to be open to the Spirit of God and see these things happen. I will give you you one illustration. I have several illustrations in this message. When I was in my first pastorate, there was a, a young woman. She was about as young as I was. Church had been growing; we had a lot of younger people, and a very pretty woman. She came to Christ. Her husband was a young executive with one of the railroads. Boy, he was mad. He was hostile to me in particular because I had been the one who was directly instrumental in his wife coming to Christ. Don't remember his name, but I remember that we prayed for him, prayed for him a lot. Right here, this is my office where I'm sitting. It's a big room. And right out here was a window. It's kind of a colonial house that we had bought. It's a snowy day. Roads were slick. And right out here, and if you make a turn right here and go up the street where my parsonage was, I was looking, watching the snowfall. It was very pretty. All of a sudden, a car comes. He was getting ready to turn but didn't realize how slick the roads were. He skidded, went up over the berm, the sidewalk and into a building. He was not hurt, but I didn't know that. He crashed into the building. I jumped out of my chair, and I was the first one on the site. And guess who it was? It was the husband. I was the one that came to him. Just maybe a week or two after that, he received Christ. I had to go. The Spirit of God impelled me. I didn't know who it was. You would have felt the same way. I had to go. There was an accident. When we let the Spirit of God direct us, we wind up in places where we don't expect. And sometimes God uses those as divine encounters, divine appointments to help us lead others to Christ. But here's the thing. We had been praying for that guy. Not only I, but other people and his wife been praying that he might come to Christ. And he did. very shortly later, they got transferred somewhere else, so I never got the later story. You've got to be to be ready to follow, to follow the spirit of God in these things. How can you do that? Well, what did I say we'd been doing? Several of us have been praying. You just need to ask God. There are people out there with whom he may have a divine appointment for you, a divine encounter, and the joy of it all when it all comes together. Like that old TV show, The hate Team, I just love it when a plan comes together, when God's plan comes together. The next thing I want you to notice is the Lord's willingness to venture into unfriendly turf at the prompting of the Spirit. You know... <clears throat> A lot of turf is not necessarily friendly to us. It's not some place where we're just dying to go. We kind of know what is there, and we're hesitant to jump into that. But Jesus knew what was there, and in spite of that, expecting a Samaritan greeting, he goes. Let's read about this encounter after verse 4. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar. It was next to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. All of this is by divine arrangement. And Jacob's well was there, been there. It's in Palestinian territory. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sometimes even our weariness, whatever, the very human things, will lead us to stop or be at certain places at certain times. We know nothing about that. It wasn't the case with Jesus. And sitting thus by the well, it was about the sixth hour, high noon, there came a woman from Samaria to draw water. Now, there are two things that come together here. A Jew and a Samaritan, that wasn't supposed to happen. And then there was a man and a woman, that wasn't supposed to happen. But the Lord Jesus didn't give a rip because those were based on prejudice. He broke through all the prejudices and he did what the father was telling him to do. This woman of Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her very innocently, he knew what he was doing, would you give me a drink? His disciples had gone away. They weren't there to tell him he wasn't supposed to be there and doing that. They'd gone away into the city to buy food. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman therefore said to him, she was kind of like these kind of ladies. She had spice and she spoke up. She didn't say, okay, I'll get it. She said, Tell me, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? Since I am two wrong things, I am a Samaritan and I am a woman. For the Jews, John adds, have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and he said to her, You know, dear, if you knew the gift of God, if you had any idea who's talking to you, And who says to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She takes everything literally and she says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. This well is deep and it is. Where then do you get that living water you're talking about? You're not telling me you're greater than our father Jacob. Are you? He gave us this well. He drank of himself, his sons and his cattle. Are you professing to be somebody greater than all of them? Jesus answered and said, I'm paraphrasing a little. Dear everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again but whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him shall become in him a, or her a well of living water springing up to eternal life. The lady at this point, she might have been just a little sarcastic. She said, well, sir, give me this water that I'll not be thirsty and have to come all the way here every day to draw water. Jesus says, Lady, go call your husband and come here. She was caught. She answered and said, Sir, I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, Boy, you got that right. You have well said, I have no husband. You have had five of them. And the one with whom you're not now, she was an American, is not your husband. You guys are shacking up. You said this truly. Oh, my gosh. How does she get out of this? Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. We'll come back to that. But we notice Jesus' willingness to venture into unfriendly turf at the prompting of the spirit of his father. Got to be willing to do that. I, uh, I've told this story years ago. I was in my... Little church there in the famed town of Polka, West Virginia, the home of the polka dots, literally. It's quite the town. And uh, there was another town just down the road, in West Virginia, things are kind of close together. His name is Dunbar, and that was the site of West Virginia State College. And if you get the date straight, I was there from 1963 to 1970. Those of you who are a little older, one or two of you, you will remember those days. What were those days? Somebody want to tell me? Well, those were the days of Vietnam. Those were hard days in America. Those were the days of all the hippies and the yippies and all of that. And kind of like today, everything was was in a swirl, a political swirl, and people hated one another. Those people, their, their kids are now doing what we've got in this country. Anyway, there were not pleasant times to live in. I lived right through them. There was a college over there, West Virginia State College, and it was mostly, not entirely, just flip-flop of what you usually see, a black college. There were some whites, and I just felt a burden to go over there and maybe see if I could get something going on that campus. So I went over there and I did that. It was unfriendly territory. I've got to abbreviate the story. Great things came out of that ministry. Can't go on and tell you about that, but it was hostile. They gave me a place which was an open dorm entrance. That's the place they gave me to teach, not in some side room. And I had everybody and his brother going through that as I was trying to teach. And then I had the dorm monitor who later became assistant to the governor of West Virginia. Every other word he cussed me out as I was trying to teach. Then one night, as I was trying to leave, some guys chased me down. Now, well, that's a little overstated. They didn't exactly chase me. They followed me down a narrow hallway. I didn't wanna be caught by those guys in a narrow hallway. Nevertheless, I was. I had gone into hostile territory. I didn't know it. You gotta be willing to do some of this. And just leave it to the Lord and see what happens. As I say later, great things happen. But as I was walking down that narrow hallway, and I didn't know whether they were gonna get me in the hallway or wait till I got to the parking lot to my car. It's pretty tense. And all of a sudden, about as far as from me to Jason, a great big black guy who ought to have been in the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> they had a football team and maybe he was on it. He was huge. It's like a mountain. He burst out his door. I could smell wine on him that far. And he looked at it. What the blankety blank are you guys doing? Leave that whitey preacher alone. My daddy was a preacher. Get the, you know, out of here. You got to be willing to go into hostile territory. And God can do great things. Jesus was in hostile territory at this time. I want you to notice next how our Lord always stays on task. He keeps his eye on the ball and he probes every exchange as a platform to engage this woman in a dialogue about more transcendent things. I remember, I remember one time I went with a friend. I was just a freshman in college. He came home full of all evangelical deal. So we went down to our state capitol and he wanted me to go with him and do some street evangelism. The way my friend did it was not the way to do it. I knew that then. I wanted to run. He ran down and he grabbed hold of the first guy he could find, pushed him up at the doorway of a business establishment and started preaching the gospel to him. (laughs) That's not the way to do it. And that's not the way the Lord calls you to do it. But Jesus just probed his way. The lady would say something and he would say something back that was very appropriate for the situation. He didn't push it. He didn't do any of those things. But he just kept moving the ball a little downfield. And that's what we've got to do. Listen. You've got to let, you know what they say in sports? A lot of you have played sports, just as I have in you. What would the coaches say? Let the game come to you. Don't go out and force doors and break windows. Just let the game come to you. And a lot of times if we're prayerful and we ask the Lord to help us, we'll do what Jesus did. Just let the game. Listen, if that woman had rebuffed him, said, I don't want to talk to you, he would not have chased her down the road towards Samaria. He wouldn't have done that. He would have let it go. One time I was on an airplane and uh, going somewhere, I don't remember where, But I used to fly a lot doing ministry. And a a hostess, Chuck, where are you? He used to be one of those. He would, well, it was a man. I was a lady, not a man. She came back to me and she said, Sir, I wonder if you would mind something. She said, There's somebody, don't remember who, up here, who would really be helped if they had your seat and said, I have a seat for you. It's actually up closer to the front. Well, I always tried to be ready. I pray and that sort of thing. You can do the same thing. And I would usually not always have my Bible there, and I could read my Bible But I also had my Greek New Testament there, and I deliberately was reading it, not to show off, but because it might raise questions. So that would open doors. So I went up to the front, took the seat that she gave us, a good seat, and beside me was a distinguished gentleman. He was a Cambridge University professor a science professor, marine science, as I recall. And just as I hope by bringing out my Greek New Testament, he looked over and he said, what are you reading? And I told him, and he was very interested. And so we had a long talk. It was not fruitful in terms of bringing him to Christ, but a long talk about Christ. Sometimes you just got to put it out there a little bit. You've just got to be willing to take the risk. And sometimes it is a risk. We had a man in our church, no longer here, long gone. But he had come to Christ in this church. And he had his Bible there and he was seated near the front, you know, in the commoner section. And he was just there and he went by. And some guy, you know how they kind of get jammed up waiting for people to put their baggage up. And he saw our friend reading his Bible and he went off. What the blank are you doing reading that stupid Bible? You know, that sort of thing, trying to humiliate him. Sometimes you put yourself in a Samaria, which is not friendly territory. And sometimes you're not likely to get that, but you got to be willing to go into that kind of territory I ask you to notice that Jesus never forces any doors. He never barrels over top of any resistance. He wasn't getting any resistance, but he very well might have. And he took it. That's what we've got to do. Just take it a step at a time. Jesus says in John chapter six, which we'll get to at a later time, no man can come to me except the father draws him. By that statement, Jesus meant that the human heart is so resistant to the things of God. You can't by your methods, by your techniques, by your wonderful personality. You can't overcome all of that. You and I have just got to take what God's given us, go where God leads us, and do whatever the Lord is leading us to do. You notice how the Lord probes her interest, but he never forces her to be a captive audience. I'll give you an illustration. My brother, who's about six years younger than I, much better looking, uh, he worked, still does, he was formerly president of the US Navigators, but he's retired from that. But at one point he was at the University of Illinois. They worked on these college campuses and they go around knocking on dormitory doors, men's dormitories. Some guy came to the door, and he was hostile the minute he opened the door. Kind of guessed what was up. Alan invited himself in. The guy said, oh, yeah, come on in. And the guy started giving Alan the rag about everything. He was pretty cool about it. And he got in, and he saw that he was unwelcome. And then Alan said to himself, I don't think this is fruitful territory. This is hostile territory. But he invited himself in. A guy received him, as I said, but very nastily. So Alan just said quietly under his breath, we need to get out of here. But as he was going out, he looked at all the walls in that guy's dormitory. And they were just full of pornographic, salacious material. Well, I wasn't going to stay and bark at him for anything, but as he walked out or almost got out, he turned around at the door, my brother. He looked at those things. But before I leave, I want to tell you one thing. God, a holy God, is going to bring you into judgment for all this crap. All of a sudden, the guys settled down, and they had a good long talk about the things of Christ. He put himself, was willing to put himself, not force himself on, but put himself in hostile territory. You can't, I'm saying that in following Christ, people, we can't always play it safe. Which is, we like to do, we hate rejection. But he put himself in that kind of territory to see if he could find an opening like Jesus did to this woman. And this woman went along with it. She didn't know where she was going, but Jesus just played along with it. And that's the way it sometimes works. And you get an opening that may lead to somebody coming to Christ. My youngest daughter, Julie, and her friend, Val, used to go with Wheaton College students on Friday nights to downtown Chicago where they they did street evangelism. And sometimes you got to know when to get in and when to get out. And so they were standing on this corner, she and Val. And the next corner over there was a guy who was just kind of raging. And uh, so they said, let's go over there. David, you would have liked this. Let's go over there and let's encounter this fellow and see what happens. Well, what happened wasn't really good. I mean, there was no physical assault or anything like that. But it was just about that far from it. And finally, they said, well, this is not fruitful territory. So they were going across the street this way, that way. And their team was on the opposite corner. And as Julie and Val were walking, they had not introduced themselves. They couldn't because the guy went off on them. That was normally protocol. You would introduce yourself, hi, this is Julian Val. we're from Wheaton College. We're out here talking to people about Christ or whatever it is they said. They didn't get that far. So they got halfway out in the middle of the street, and the guy said, hostile territory, goodbye, Julian Val. You've seen us like in the movies. (laughs) They stopped, did a double take. We didn't even tell that guy who we are. So they got to the other side of the street to their team and they said, wow, did we encounter one over here? And the team leader who was more experienced than they were said, oh, stay away from him. That guy's demon possessed. Yeah, he appeared to be. Well, we need to test the waters and go into places where we're not welcome. Because as I say, remember in witnessing, I was never told this, but I learned it along the way. It's in the scriptures. We have, as we preached right here this morning, most everybody here is a believer. Some usually are not. We have a ministry of condemnation and a ministry of salvation. And as we share the gospel, or we try to share the gospel, some people are stiffening their hearts against the truth. They may even slander and slur the truth. Who knows what God's purpose is for them, but if they reject it, we have served God's purpose. I tell myself that all the time, that I'm serving God's purpose either way. So are you when you share the gospel. Next, notice that the Lord does not accommodate his message to her cultural prejudices in the names of Of religious tolerance. Let me read this. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, verse 20. Our fathers worshiped, now she's appealing to her cultural sensitivities. Look, we're on a different page. Our fathers, I gotta get, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. You people say you're a Jew that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. We're on two different pages. You go your way, I'll go my way. Jesus said to her, you notice he didn't say, oh, I don't want to step on your cultural sensitivities. I don't want to do that. I want to be nice. That's not where Jesus went. He said, woman, that was not discourteous, Gune. It was like saying, ma'am, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain, the mountain you're talking about right here, nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. The end of all of that is coming, and it came in 70 AD for the Jews. You folks worship that which you do not know. The God you worship is not the true God. We Jews worship that which we do know. Jesus didn't give her an inch. For salvation, lady, is of the Jews. Don't give up ground just trying to be nice. Don't be hateful, I'm not saying that. But don't give up ground just trying to play the nice guy or the nice lady. I remember a friend of mine, she's now passed. She was just a little older than Nossie and I in that same church. I remember leading her to Christ. Another guy and I would go to her house. Her husband built interstate roads. She was a very sharp lady. She was very receptive as Leon and I would go in. We went one Thursday night. We decided she was receptive enough so we'd go back the next Thursday night. I don't remember, how, I don't remember how many nights we did it going back to her place. But each night she would react. I would tell her, Joyce, you've got to understand this. You are a sinner. You are lost. She'd react to that because she was kind of sophisticated even for our small town. And by this time we were on a first name basis and she would say, Jimmy, I hate that word. Center Reminds me something these hillbillies write on rocks. It was. It was that kind of place. I said to her, and you've got to do in that situation, Joyce, I note that you react every time I use that word. That's why I'm using it, because there's where the stumbling block is. You, will, you are self-righteous. You will not admit that you are lost, that you are a sinner. That's what God says. says it right here. You're a sinner, and you're going to have to come to terms with that word if you ever be saved. She got saved. She finally overcame that. Out in the world with your friends and colleagues, we have sometimes this idea that niceness is godliness. It's not. It's not. I want to make nice. Oh, be nice. I don't mean be hateful, but hold your ground as a Christian. The truth and lies collide. You cannot be truthful and always appear to be nice. I want you to notice the attitude that drove Jesus has to be ours. His disciples come along down here in verse Yeah, down here in verse 27, at this point, his disciples came and they were shocked. They said, wow, uh, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman. Meanwhile, she went out of the city and said, come and tell me, I want you to come and see a man that told me everything that I have done. Is this the Christ? Couldn't be, is it? The disciples were saying to us, has anyone brought him anything to eat? He doesn't seem to be hungry. It's past lunchtime. He said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Well, folks, there's where we've got to be as Christians. We've got to be consumed. It's all about Christ. My food is to do his work. I'm not about, you're not supposed to be about success or money or pleasure. But our goal in life, if God is going to use us most effectively, has to, what turns me on and pulls me out of bed in the morning is the opportunity to go to my place and do the will of God who sent me. Now, I'm passing over a lot of stuff I have written here. It's a reason I'm kind of fumbling around a little bit. But I want to use one of you. He'll be embarrassed. But others of you in this congregation have that attitude. You really do. I'm proud of you. I remember it's probably about 1992, 93. I don't remember exactly we had an opening on our staff and one of the staff came and told me that a person relatively new to our church had come in and volunteered for the job. That person was Jim Twang. Jim Twang was a lawyer. Jim Twang had been in the JAG Corps, a career military guy. He'd been a military judge, prosecuted a case at West Point that some of you are much older may remember. And he wanted to come in and do a humbler job than we have him doing now on our staff. It's kind of dangerous to hire people who are overqualified. They have a way of getting dissatisfied very quickly. Still, he wanted the job because, as he explained, he had his military requirement. Money wasn't an issue. Well, that's what you like to see. Retirement is one of the most wasted things among Christians I've ever seen. There's often no spirit of that. I want to. My, my happiness, my joy is doing what God has called me to do. When you get there, God can use you a lot better. So finally, having to hurry here. The woman left her water pot and went into the city, and she said to the men, I just read it. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him, not because of the word of the woman who had said, that he told me all the things I ever did, but now they said that we've met him. We believe in him independently. Notice that evangelistic engagement is simple, as simple as sharing with those who are willing to hear the story of what Christ has done for us. Now, I'm going to read to you a bedtime story. Most people, including me, don't like to be read, to, But this is a great story. I hope you'll forgive me. A great story. This comes from the Gospel of John, Volume 1, James Montgomery Boyce. He tells the story of Dr. H.A. Ironside, who back earlier in the last century, up through the middle of it, was one of the great Bible teachers. As he was speaking, Dr. Ironside noticed that on the edge of the crowd, there was a well-dressed man who had taken a card from his pocket and written something on it. As Dr. Ironside finished his talk, this man came forward lifted his hat and very politely handed him the card. On one side was his name. The name's not mentioned in this, but I think I've heard that it was Dr I don't know it was Dr. Robert Ingersoll, a famous atheist. The man was one of the early socialists who sounds familiar, huh, who made a name for himself lecturing not only for socialism but also against Christianity. That's natural. As Ironside turned the card over, he read, Sir, I challenge you to a debate with me on the question, agnosticism versus Christianity. In the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, I will pay all expenses. Ironside read the card aloud and then replied publicly, actually. And he said, I'm very much interested in the challenge. Frankly, I am already scheduled for another meeting next Lord's Day afternoon at three o'clock. But I think it would be possible for me to get through with that in time to, to reach the Academy of Science Hall by four. Or if necessary, I could arrange to have another speaker substitute for me at the meeting already advertised. Therefore, I'll be glad to agree to this debate. And this was really wise. On the following conditions, namely, that in order to prove that Mr., whatever his name was, has something worth fighting for and worth debating about, I'm asking that you promise to bring with you to the hall next Sunday two people, just two people, whose qualifications I will give in a moment as proof that agnosticism is of real value in changing human lives and building true character first ironside said he here in the text it's he that i make it you make it more understandable you must promise to bring with you one man one man who was for years what we commonly call a down and outer i'm not particular as to the exact nature of the sins that had wrecked his life And made him an outcast for society. The point I'm driving at here. You'll get to it. Is that sometimes all we need to do. Is tell our story. Listen. Then he goes on. I got to cut to the chase here a little bit. He says I want you to bring a woman. You may have a little more trouble finding her. Whose life is just an absolute wreck. I want you to bring her. And have her testify to the same thing. here's what I'll do, cutting to the chase Ironside said and he he said you bring just those two people who will get up and attest to the joys and the life changing power of your agnosticism I will bring a hundred half men, half women who will get up and testify to how the gospel of jesus christ has changed their lives and the guy said the text describes it he just smiled wryly. And he said, no, he couldn't do it he knew he couldn't find people who could testify to the power of agnosticism to change their lives and deliver them from their sins what did these people have to do They just had to tell their story. And what I'm telling you is what we see in this narrative. You don't have to be a theologian to go out and be effective for Christ, to be a witness for Christ. Tell your story. Just tell your story. Many of you have been redeemed from tough situations. All you have to do is say, well, let me tell you my story. You don't have to defend anything. You know your story. It cannot be denied. Well, that's what we ought to do. You can be effective for Christ. You can be effective for the ministry of condemnation or for the ministry of salvation. God is glorified in both. Isaiah tells us that very thing. God is glorified in His judgment. He's also glorified in His redemption. Go out and share the gospel with this world. Let Jesus be our model. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this time you've given us together. We thank you for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we will heed it, that we will follow it. We ask it in his name. Amen.